Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Pet Zoo Vine for November 21st, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, and um, Catherine Smith has the evening off. We got a special surprise early in the show, but I do want to let everybody know that um, as we planned a while back, um, Dr. Charles Wheeland of Dartmouth is going to come on the show, and he's going to talk about his uh, latest book, We Came, We Saw, We Left. That's going to be about 20 minutes, but until then, uh, a special surprise, someone we've been wanting to have on the show for quite some time now, Robin Kemp of the Clayton Crescent. Welcome, Robin. Hi. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm glad to have you on. Well, Robin, just right off, just tell our listeners a little about your uh, bio as it relates to journalism, politics, and life. Well, uh, I grew up in the news business, quite literally. My dad, who passed away in uh, July, was a newsman for 50 years, Jim Kemp. And I had the great honor and privilege of watching him every minute of my life, and that's kind of how I got into the business by osmosis. I, I just was always very attracted to it. Uh, I studied history and English in college and creative writing in graduate school and had, in between all of these times, worked at, you know, local papers and things like that. In 80, from 89 to 96, I was a news writer and occasional special project kind of on the side thing person for CNN. Um, what I am doing now is the Clayton Crescent. And the Clayton Crescent came into being last April. I was uh, a crime and safety reporter at the Clayton News Daily. Uh, they're having the same problems that all the other small papers in the country are having. And uh, they had a round of layoffs, I think right around it seemed like it was in December or something. It seemed like it was near the holidays, which was unfortunate. And we lost two of our four news staff who were covering two counties, you know. And I, I was working crime and safety in Henry and Clayton County, so for the Henry Herald as well, and covering uh, local government, city and counties for uh, Clayton. So that was a lot to have on one person's plate. But, I, you know, when I, I called up and said, hey, I'm looking for work. Would you guys be interested? I told them that one thing I could do is turn a lot of stories quickly. So that's what I was doing. And believe me, you had to to get any of it done. Um, So by April, COVID was in full swing, and uh, that really cut into the advertising business uh, because court was kind of suspended a little bit. (laughs) You know, it's still sort of – it's back in the swing of things, but uh, it's, uh, it's still a little bit backlogged. So there weren't a whole lot of ads coming to the uh, legals, which is, you know, one of the big money makers for local papers or for county papers if they get to be the the paper of record or the legal organ. So uh, they had to let some more people go, and they were trying to get some COVID loan money for small businesses and all of that. And this time I got cut loose, and I realized that 
unfortunately, there was literally nobody else who would be doing what needed to be done in terms of covering government in certain counties, not to mention things like COVID and all of that that was going on. And so I walked into the next room, and I opened up a template, and I just kept on doing what I was doing, and I've been doing it ever since. And hopefully we'll do it beyond November 30th, but right now the finances don't look that good. Yes, and we'll get into that. So kind of tell the listeners, one, you can give the website address, but tell the listeners kind of the journalistic focus of the Clayton Crescent. Um, ClaytonCrescent.org is the website. And our focus is this kind of basic meat and potatoes government coverage and government accountability. So there's a little bit of, of crime stuff in there, not too much. Uh, there's a little bit deeper dive. You know, perhaps there will be an environmental concern that would involve government at some level, you know. Uh, so we would be interested in those kinds of things. We're interested in the stories that otherwise would go uncovered that do demand public accountability. So uh, things like open meetings, open records, uh, COVID numbers by zip code and city, uh, gosh, well, so many things, the jail conditions at the Clayton County Jail. All of these are things that people want to know about and they have a right to know about, but uh, sometimes certain politicians don't want people to know about them, and so that's our job. Yes. Well, I'm fixing to pass this over uh, to Tim Shiflett, but I'm going to tell Tim three things, and one of them, I mean, it's kind of straightforward, obvious about you, but uh, two of them good and one of them troublesome. Tim, Robin is a Georgia State graduate, so you know that means she's got a good education. She lives in Clayton County, so, you know, she's got good taste in where to live, but she's a New Orleans Saints fan, so, you know. Oh. Take that for what it's worth. This interview is uh, over. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Robin, we've got two or three things in common, and, and, and there's always room on the Falcons bandwagon. But I'm going to pass it over to Tim Shifflett for some <laughs> questions for you. Tim? Well, good evening, Miss Kemp, and thank you for being hey. with us tonight. Um, thank you, I, I got to ask you, first of all, since you've done a lot of both, now, which do you prefer – Online news reporting or, or working in print media? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic. You know, I like both of them, and I've worked in television. I've worked in radio. Uh-huh. And, and to me, it's just, it's just another method for getting out a story. It's just the means to an end, right? It's a delivery mm-hmm. system. And, yes, they do all require different kinds of writing to be effective, but, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly – partial to one or the other. I do love print. I'm a print gal. I'm a codex gal. I like the printed book. I like the newspaper. Uh, yeah. But I don't but, object to but being online. Yeah, but, but you know, you, as the rest of us, have seen print media decline in recent mm-hmm. years as it has moved into the digital realm. Yeah. Uh, do do you think there is a place in the future still for a strong print media, or, or is all of it headed to the Internet? I think that it's very much been the case for a while that, that almost all print outlets have added a web component part of, you know, they kind of have to at this point. But mm-hmm. the, problem, the problem with print is not that it is print. The problem with print is distribution. It's the 
expense and the cost of printing and then bringing to each address that printed product. And if we can solve that problem, then, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps, a, you know, a, a more sustainable newsprint product, maybe bamboo, I don't know, uh, being able to deliver, I don't know, some more ecologically friendly way or more efficient way, I'm not sure, but th- those are the problems that would have to be solved for there to be a print product going out to a lot of houses again, I think, or or sick mail, which is something that apparently is they're trying to do in Washington. They're trying to get the mm-hmm. U.S. mail to again, but, you know, who knows how long that will take, and I don't anticipate them dropping their prices anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Now, now looking at at your online publication, mm-hmm. uh, I read where um, you do not take political positions on the issues that you report on. Why is mm-hmm. that? Because we want our doors to be open to everybody. Uh, uh-huh. It's it's really easy to. Uh, say, I'm going to write this editorial and I'm going to recommend a candidate. Well, first of all, you can't really do that if you're a nonprofit because you're not really allowed to. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and the second thing is that I do live in a very diverse community. There are people here who are stone-cold Trump people, okay? And there uh-huh. are people who are, you know, just like raving socialists. And there are people who are everything in between. You know, I, I've got praise from people across the political spectrum for the site, and I'm very proud of that. I'm happy that Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians can come to the site and get something of value out of it, because I'm not trying to advocate for any one of these parties. And in point of fact, I don't care what party you belong to. If you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, then I'm going to tell somebody about it, and I have. Now, now going forward, do you plan on focusing exclusively on stories and issues of local interest in Clayton County, or do you foresee branching out into state and national um, issues as well? For, for the Clayton Crescent, even if it's a state or a national issue, I try to keep it very pegged to Clayton County. Clayton County uh-huh. is a strange thing. It's almost it functions almost like a city of its own, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to just cover what's here because no one else is doing it. But it's also important to introduce, you know, bigger ideas like gerrymandering and redistricting and the redistricting process up front when before they're happening and while they're happening, so people can participate in them. You know, mm-hmm. people in Clayton County also have representatives at the Gold Dome. We do get some help from uh, Capital Beat News Service in in covering some of that. I've covered some of the Gold Dome, uh, but it's, it gets expensive, and it's a, a big time sink if you have other things to do back down in Clayton County. Now, I do mm-hmm. like to go outside the fringes in what is kind of the organic feeling, kind of natural People you know that you you know the area and, and it's not like literally inside the Clayton County border, but it's sort of in the area. So like Ellenwood crosses into Henry County, okay. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to look at Ellenwood. Conley crosses into DeKalb County. I'm going to look at Conley. 
I would like to look more at hate bill, even though it's in Fulton County, because it's historically and geographically connected to this whole area in North Clayton. Yes, ma'am, so, it is. Yeah. So I like to spread it out, you know, and maybe a little nip in Henry or something like that, if it's relevant. Yeah, I like to do that very much. Un- understood. Well, I thank you for that, Miss Kemp. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David for the rest of the segment. David? Yes. Um, now, about a year ago, you got a lot of national attention when, um, you know, they were still counting several states, including Georgia, with the mail-in ballots, and Clayton County had a good many um, outstanding, and it's kind of thought that the, the ballots in Clayton County are where Joe Biden took the lead to where he crossed the threshold mm-hmm. to become president-elect. You covered that process just tell us a little bit about what you saw hands-on, I guess, overnight that night. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Uh, I went down there thinking, oh, I should go down there because they're going to count the votes. And we have all, there were a ton of county races on there. You know, I think there was a judge or two, and they're, most of them are running unopposed, and they're going to get reelected. But the sheriff was running. And there was, it looked like he was running unopposed, but there was actually a write-in that was not on the ballot <laughs> who was running against him. Uh, there were a bunch of other races, and obviously the presidential race. And I, I just wanted to go down there and get the vote count because I felt that was part of the normal job. So I go down to this place where they count the vote. They call it the bunker. Excuse me. And uh, it was during the daytime. It was pretty early. And uh, I think they were counting absentee ballots at that point. That's why there was something going on down there. And there were a couple of guys who were – oh, no, they weren't there yet. There were, there were like three journalists from – I think it was Norwegian television, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then the, there were these other two guys. One of them apparently seemed to be with David Perdue's campaign because he had Purdue cards and – there were a bunch of people who had David Perdue cards throughout the night. Uh, and this other guy uh, was uh, muckety-muck in the, the National Republican Party from, like, decades back. Uh, a guy named Manuel Iglesias, who's got offices in Virginia, and he's a very big deal. And they were kind of casting aspersions on, you know, whether or not there were too many Democrats counting votes or whether as the evening progressed, uh, whether there was commingling of ballots and all this kind of stuff. And you can stand in front of this window and see them taking the ballots out of the boxes and putting them in stacks and taking the stacks to the next one where people actually count them and account for them and do all the things, right? Uh, so a couple of us asked him, you know, what do you think you saw? And he would not be specific. And we were saying, well, you know, you said you thought you saw some improper ballot handling. What exactly is it? Can you describe what you saw? And, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. And I, I asked him straight up. I said, well, if you think there's any kind of wrongdoing, are you going to file any kind of civil suit in, in Clayton County Superior Court? He wouldn't answer that either. Uh, it, it was very strange. So then as the evening progressed, okay, if you're a poll watcher, a poll observer, you can register through your political party, right? And you will get credentials to allow you to go in and watch this. Uh, But certain people can only go in certain places. So there's like 
statewide people that can go anywhere, and then people who just go in, you know, a particular assigned county or precinct or whatever. Well, around the evening time, uh, more and more and more of these kids started coming. And they were kids. They were like college-age kids. And they were coming in, sometimes in like little platoons that, that someone else would direct and say, Team A, you're over here. Team B, you're in there. And they were based, it, it, it seemed that they were doing two things. They were trying to determine whether or not there were any issues with ballot commingling, or they would complain and see that they couldn't see the signatures from across the room. And, and we all know now that, like, that's not how the signature process works. It happens way before the ballots ever get there. Um, and they were crowding into the, the taped-off area. There's, like, a little taped-off area where you're not supposed to go beyond if you're not somebody who's counting ballots. So there's, there's a lot of space for election observer, reporter, whoever to stand in there and watch. And there were two chairs in there. And at one point there were, like, 10 or 12 of these people in there, and they were leaning over on a table. There were, there were a couple of police officers in there telling them, look, you can't lean on this table. Earlier, there was a, a young woman who uh, was talking to her friends outside in the hallway and said, watch this, I'm about to get thrown out. And she turns on her cell phone and runs in and starts trying to shoot video of the count, which you cannot do, right, by like statute. So uh, one of the election staff and a police officer told her, ma'am, you need, to, you need to leave, you need to step out now. She ran to the other door and continued to film, and then she ran out. So it was like this bizarre stunt like this, you know, and people saying, oh, I think I see some ballots from England. And again, I would ask them, well, can you describe what you saw? Oh, no, no, you have to talk to our PR person, and they're a buckhead. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so around, it, it got really kind of heated, and I, I'm thinking, this is not like anything I've ever seen. I, this is supposed to be like the most boring process ever. So around, I don't know, later in the evening, I, I was kind of live-tweeting all of this because that was just what was at hand. I couldn't bring my computer in and update the website, so I just live-tweeted I honestly thought I was talking to, like, two other reporters who cared. I didn't know the whole universe was watching Clayton County, and I certainly didn't know they were following me on Twitter because I was just, like, feeding it. I wasn't reading it. And I get this call from some guy with a British accent, and he's calling from a radio show called Leading Britain's Conversation. Well, I don't know if I could be on in a few minutes. I'm like, uh, okay, let me go to my car. <laughs> so I went out to my car, and I did this interview, and he's asking questions like, do you think democracy is dead in the United States? It's all, yeah, really over-the-top stuff. Uh, I'm like, what is going on? So I go back in, and I continue covering it in this way. Around an hour later, maybe, uh, I think it was when the Clayton County election supervisor, who was not talking to me or to any other reporters because they have very strict rules about who they can talk to or whatever during the process, goes on CNN for an interview. I said, what? I'm standing out here all night. You know me. Come on. Why are you going on CNN? That's not fair. Um, some of the guys from CNN and the local TV station showed up around, I don't know, 2, 3 in the morning. And as soon as they showed up, the big guys with the big cameras on the big sticks, all these teenagers, or not teenagers, but these young people ran out the door. They did not want to be videotaped. This is very strange. And they all disappeared. Well, or they hung around in the parking lot, whatever. Uh, some of them started joking with me and said, hey, have you checked your GoFundMe lately? Like, what GoFundMe? What are you talking about? 
oh, no, have you really? Have you checked your assignments? And, and I'm, I'm like, completely at a loss. I had started a little tiny GoFundMe to kind of ask friends and family to kick in to refund me for the price of setting up the, the web address and the web software and the super basic business filing and all of that. So a couple of few hundred bucks, right? I forgot all about it. Some random guy out there on the Internet found this and thought it would be a good idea to put it on Twitter until people could put money in it for me. And I, and one of the guys showed me, and there's like over $8,000 there. I said, oh, my God, what is this? And the money kept coming for like another day, and it wound up being like twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand. 13, 14,000. It was like in the five figures. And I, I'm thinking, what can I, what am I supposed to do with this? I can't take this money personally, right? So I thought, I know what. I'll, I'll make a nonprofit. I'll, I'll get a board, and we'll have governance, and we'll have an accountant, and it'll, we'll just use it to build the Clayton Crescent. So that's what I did. And, and, <laughs> and that's a perfect yeah. segue to, to kind of where we wanted to finish the interview. Uh, you set the November 30th deadline. Um, before you leave our listeners, tell us, um, you know, if they've listened to you, they've read the Clayton Crescent, they want to support your work, what can they do? Well, uh, I have a short link for them to make it easy. If you would like to give a one-time gift, and it's a fully tax-deductible because we are a 1C3 and we are members of the Institute for Nonprofit News, we're in something called Newsmatch. So through November the 30th, any gift that goes through here will be matched, so they tell us. Uh, the, the web address for that is tiny, T-I-N-Y, dot C-C, forward slash, capital L, capital F, capital L, small f, tiny.cc forward slash LFLS. The LFLS doesn't mean anything. It's just a short link. Yes. And well, we, we appreciate Robin, it. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, well, we thank you so much for coming on the show, and we hope to keep reading your work after December 1st because you're successful with that goal. So if for our listeners, make sure you read Robin's work at um, ClaytonCrescent.org. And then, of course, if you like what you see, give her a donation to keep her in business. Thank you. And please read back. Read older stories as well. I mean, there's a whole lot of stories in there. And had I not done these, a lot of history and a lot of very important stuff would not have gotten recorded. Yes. Well, thanks again, Robin, for coming on the Kudzu Vine. Thank you, Thank David. you ma'am. Y'all take care. You Bye. too. All right. Robin uh, Kemp, purveyor of the Journalistic News Source Online for Clayton County, Georgia. Now we're going to segue on to our next guest. We've been excited about having on the show for at least a month now from Dartmouth University, Dr. Charles Whelan. Welcome, Dr. Whelan. Oh, it's good to be with you. Yes. Well, um, Dr. Whelan, I kind of gave a little bit about your professional, um, you know, title, but you've got a, a much, you know, broader biography than that. Just kind of start off before we get into the book. Tell our listeners about who you are. I would describe myself as a public policy guy. That's what I studied. So I got my PhD in. I've worked in government in different capacity. But then after I got my PhD, I was a writer for The Economist for about five years based out of Chicago, covering all the stories in the American Midwest, went back to teaching, first at the University of Chicago and now at Dartmouth, 
I teach public policy to undergrads, so that's everything from health care to the budget situation and so on. And I, I think what we're going to talk about is when I stepped away from all of that. Absolutely, because we do have some uh, – you have some other things that you've written that you've worked on, and we want to get you back on later to talk about those. And we've discussed that tonight. I mean, that your book, We Came, We Saw, We Left, was so intriguing. We want to give complete focus to it. Um, but Dr. Willie, you, I guess, I, you know, a lot of times we say, why did you write the book? Well, you wrote the book because you took the trip. Tell our listeners why exactly. you took the trip. Well, the trip, the shorthand is nine months, six continents, three teenagers. That's the, the, the short form of it. There are a lot of reasons we did it. My wife and I, we met in college, and we actually traveled around the world for nine months after we graduated from college. It was kind of a post-college gap year, also for nine months. It was a very interesting time. It was 1988-89, so by coincidence, we were in Eastern Europe just before the wall came down, the fence had come down between Austria and Hungary. We were in China in 1989. I was able to write for a local newspaper, so I came back with clips, which turned out to be a really important entree for me into journalism. Overall, this trip, was remarkably formative, obviously for our relationship, but also professionally and just as an opportunity to see the world. Once we got married and had kids, we thought, wow, it would be very interesting and ambitious to to do it again, albeit with our three children. And that's what we decided to do. We'd been thinking about it for years, but there came a time when the oldest had graduated from high school, the second oldest was in high school, and the third was in eighth grade, that was kind of the last opportunity we were going to have before the oldest went off to college. We, we did it. Yes. Um, and so um, I will tell you, actually, I listened to this book on a trip. My wife and I were taken to South Mississippi. And as we were listening, um, my wife listened a little bit and we were, she was like, this, this man understands us with the plight of your middle daughter and our only daughter, uh, both volleyball players that are extremely strong willed. Yes. So right then I, yes. I felt we had a connection. Um, but, but Dr. Wheeling, you know, you went to six continents. Um, were there places that you would have liked to have gone or maybe have never gone in your life throughout all your travels? There are many. One of the crazy things is nine months seems so long. And yet when we arrived in Colombia, which was the first country on the trip, almost immediately, most of our planning was discussing places we would not be able to go. We didn't go to Brazil. We didn't go down the east side of South America. We never made it to Antarctica. We didn't make it to the tip of Argentina. We didn't make it to a lot of places in Colombia that we wanted to go to. So it is remarkable. We went to a couple countries in Africa, but there are many more that I would have enjoyed going to. So it's almost extraordinary how much time you spend saying no just to go to the places where you get to yes. Yes, and your book starts out in Colombia, and you mentioned some of the history there. For listeners that are you know, a lot of times thinking, well, I can't go to that country or I can't go to that place because it's so dangerous, um, what would you say to them? Well, I think the world is always changing. You kind of have to be cognizant of what's going on in a given place at any particular time. You you have to be cognizant of what the real risks are when you're traveling, which are really motor vehicles, getting getting hit by a car. You know, the chances of getting kidnapped or being attacked by a terrorist are pretty low anywhere. 
So you kind of have to have an awareness of what's going on. But most places in the world, even those that generate some outsized headlines, are when you get on the ground much safer than you would think. And if you exercise common sense, then they're safer still. Colombia was one of those places for us. I, I don't think I'd watched Narcos when we arrived, but the rest of the world had watched Narcos. That is not exaggerated. I actually went back to Colombia later with students, and we met with the former mayor of Medellin, and Pablo Escobar tried to kill him three different times. But by the time we got there in 2016, there had been a peace referendum. The country was in the process of being transformed. In part because of that, people were very paternalistic toward us, and we had a lovely time. I would say that Colombia was actually one of our favorite places on the journey. Yes. Well, somewhat a related question is, you know, our, our country's gotten so divided by not just straight up politics, but in their worldview. And, and it's my sense that if you looked at people and how they felt about travel, particularly international travel, um, if they're for it, they're politically one way. If they're against it, they're politically another. Not 100%, but just by and large. Have you kind of noticed that in your experience? I have noticed it a little. I've also seen it in the academic literature. Your, your intuition is actually absolutely correct on that, in part because you know, part of what it means to be liberal and you know, leave aside Democrats is just you tend to embrace a kind of a, a curiosity for the world, things that are novel and new and different, like they're, they're exciting. And the kind of the definition conservative is also kind of a personality trait, which is a familiarity and appreciation for what you know best. And so when you extend that to travel or food or other things, there, it does tend to have kind of a political dimension to it. So among people, if you were to go into a youth hostel, you know, pick anywhere in the world, India, and you were to poll the travelers there, I suspect that they would be probably different politically than the folks who didn't show up at that youth hostel. Yes, and my final question for right now until I pass it to Tim, what do you think we could do to break that down? Because I think if more people would travel, it would at least give them a new perspective. How do you get through to those people that are just, I don't want to leave America? Yeah, well, I think we'd probably start by traveling more in America. I, I think there are plenty of places. I live in one of them that are kind of their own little islands. And traveling around America will give you a sense of just how remarkably different and diverse this country is and strong in so many ways. So, I, you know, I would say, well, all right, well don't, don't leave the country. Just start by traveling to a part of the country that you've never spent any time in. And, I, you know, there's an old saying in Washington – that it's hard to hate somebody if you know the name of their dog. And the, and the origin of it is that part of what's going on in Washington is because legislators don't live there anymore. They're, they're back home in the district fundraising so often that they've lost that personal connection. And you see it in the personal rancor. In the old days, people would say, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would sit down and have a drink. And they'd argue all day, have a fundamentally different worldview, and then they'd have a scotch at the end of the day. So I, I think – it's hard to hate somebody up close. You, you tend to have more em empathy for what's going on in their world. So I say start traveling in the U.S. and then slowly broaden your horizons, and I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. And that's great advice until we get the pandemic fully behind us. We <laughs> may not have advice. as many travel choices. Oh, um, well, you know, I'm going to pass it. We should say. 
Yes, definitely so yeah, when um, the, the time parameter of your trip. Well, let me pass it exactly. on to Tim Shiflett. We'll have plenty more good questions. Tim? Good evening, Dr. Whelan. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, well, it's you good to have join referred, you. You have referred to this experience as a, quote, family gap year. What exactly do you mean by that phrase? Well, it's drawn from the gap year that high school students sometimes take after high school before going to college. What I meant by it was we just kind of set aside what we were doing for a spell, both of our jobs, my wife and I, the kids schooling, although they were two of them were homeschooled, so they didn't actually take a gap. They continued on to the next year. But it was really about stepping out from our lives for a stretch, nine months, and then stepping right back into it. It wasn't a change of lifestyle. It wasn't a change of trajectory because we came back where we were. So we thought of it as kind of a gap in our life. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I got to ask this because I, I've raised two sons, and, and David has raised uh, two kids as well. And I got to ask, you had three kids. Teenagers all. Um, did that make for a rather unique trip? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, if you do anything with teenagers, I mean, if you go to the grocery store with teenagers, it's going to be an interesting experience. So, yes, you just yeah. turn that up. That's like a two. You turn it up to a ten. We coined an expression called the total family meltdown which was uh-huh. when three people were crying at once or one adult and one child at the same time. And I think we had five of them <laughs> by my count. Now, interestingly, most of them were in the first two months because we uh-huh. got better. And it really, to be fair, in the end, it wasn't the teenagers, although um, we had a lot of challenges homeschooling my daughter. She just despised the online classes in the same way that many people came to during the pandemic. But most of our conflict within the family was over the introvert-extrovert split. That was a more – we have two fairly extreme introverts. I'm one of them. We have one raging extrovert, and then my wife and daughter are somewhere in between, and there was a lot of conflict between – because the extrovert just wants to process the world out loud all the time, and the introverts mm-hmm. just want to turn that off. And when you're in close quarters for a long period of time, that was what we had to manage more than anything else. Mm. So you you traveled the world over from Colombia to India. Did you find that people everywhere essentially have a lot in common, or are we markedly different from others? I would say we found both, the latter being different pleasantly slow. One of my fears, having done this trip 25 years earlier, was that mm-hmm. go back to places like India and they look like suburban Chicago, which is where I grew up, that the world would become homogenized. It would be the same stores, the same kind of housing, the same cars, and that much of what makes the world interesting would have been lost. And that was not the case, just as it's not the case in the United States. I mean, there's still you know, profound and important and interesting regional differences. That is still true around the world. There's still a sense of place even across cities within different countries. So, uh, you know, coastal Colombia is different than the mountainous cities and so on. On the other hand, yes, there are certain commonalities. 
And that's one of the fun things about being in a residential neighborhood on a Tuesday, which you see are people going to work, kids going to school, people running businesses. You know, they may look slightly different. They may be speaking a language you don't necessarily understand. Uh, but the fundamental acts of going about your life are eminently familiar. So I would say it was a, it was a pleasing combination of familiarity and difference. Mm-hmm. And w- with all the experiences that, that you were faced with, when you look back on the trip now, is there a specific memory in this trip that you would say you cherish most? There's a couple. Uh, One was very early in the trip, and I actually start the book out with it. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. a great experience, but the fact that we were able to push through it is why it's so memorable and so important. That was we got separated on the Medellin subway system. So we were only probably two weeks into the trip. We were a little rusty in terms of just logistics and making sure everybody knew where we were going and so on. The train was crowded. It was rush hour. We ended up on three different trains. And my son, for reasons that are still not clear, had shouted San Pedro, which we all thought was a stop that we were going to get off on. We get on our respective trains, look at the map, and realize there is no San Pedro. So where are we going to get off? And only I was the only one with a cell phone that had an international plan. They all had phones, but they needed Wi-Fi. So we're now separated in Medellin, Colombia. And the question is, what are we going to do? And two of the kids were gone for like 90 minutes. And I'm thinking, what the heck are they doing? And it turns out they had found some San Pedro bus stop that they tried to go to. They ended up walking nine and a half miles. So it was it was kind of stressful in the moment, more than kind of. But everybody got through it. And by the end of the night, we were in a pretty good mood. And for us, that was a a small test that indicated, okay, we might actually be able to pull this thing off. And it was, in some ways, the green light for the rest of the trip that boldened us. Wow. Um, Now, is there a central message in this book that you would impart to someone if they ask you what the central message of this book was? Sure. I would say this is first and foremost a book about parenting that happens to take place while we're going around the world. It is, uh-huh. You know, the, the, the travels are the spine and the narrative, and they create the adventure. But this is really a book about nine months in the lives of a family of five with – the attendant stress over negotiating with the middle daughter about whether she was going to stay home for the volleyball season. And the oldest daughter got a flesh eating parasite that had to be treated. And the youngest son wouldn't be necessarily be as quiet as we were like, you know, and, but these are things that people navigate to one extent or another, even if they're not leaving home at all. So it's really mm-hmm. a story about family and parenting with lots of fun travel stories interwoven. And I thank you for that, Doctor, and we will send it back to David. David? Yes. Um, well, Dr. Whelan, I want to ask you this as well. You keep uh, you mentioned in the book, you mentioned tonight, taking students from, I'm assuming, Dartmouth um, around the world on these trips, obviously not nine months, but tell us a little bit more about that process. So this is one of the most enjoyable classes I teach. I think also one of the most meaningful for the students. The way it's structured, we're on a quarter system here. 
is that all fall quarter we will study a particular international topic. So it might be the peace process in Colombia. It might be economic reform in India. It could be income inequality in Brazil. But there's a very specific topic. It's associated with a place. And there's also a policy question. So, for example, with Colombia, we were looking at the peace process, and the policy question was what, if anything, can the United States do to facilitate the implementation of the Colombian peace process? We studied on campus for 10 weeks, including the history of the country, the relevant topic, and so on. And then at the end of the term, right, when everybody else has taken finals and has gone home, we as a class of students, me and an assistant, fly to the place that we're studying and spend two weeks talking to experts, policy experts, diplomats, economists, journalists, artists, any dissidents, former prisoners, whoever can inform the topic. Before we fly home, the students have to produce collectively a white paper with their policy recommendations on the topic, with specific recommendations around whatever the memo topic is. So, for example, here are the 10 things the United States should or should not do to facilitate peace in Colombia. So it's a remarkable learning experience in part because we're immersed in the country and we are speaking to the people who are working on this issue day in, day out. Yes, you said an assistant. I would apply, but I know that Tim would just beat me out because he'd apply <laughs> too for that um, slot. Yeah, well, well, you need to make the – got to make the trains run on time. you got to get the students from point A to B, and you can't lose any one of them. The college frowns on that. <laughs> well, <laughs> that may be a taller task. Well, let me – a related question to that and the book. So you wrote this book, and I know you write other books about, you know, particularly economics, but is there any chance that you'll either reprise this trip when your kids are older, maybe all through college or at least part of the way through college, or maybe the younger son, or maybe just you and your wife, or write about you and your college students and do a, a, another a sequel? I think that we will continue to travel. I think once you've had a taste of it and you find it exciting that it's something you do for the rest of your life. I think now that two of the three kids are out of college, I don't think we're going to get in and working. We're just not going to have the time with them, which is part of the reason we did it when we did. We could see that coming. I suspect that my wife and I will do it again. It will probably not be places like rural India and Myanmar. I think we might tilt a little more towards Europe. Uh, you know, as we get older, it might be a little higher budget point because this was a very frugal trip that we describe in the, in the book. So uh, we'll continue to travel, but I think this is probably the last big family global adventure. Yes. Well, one final question, um, you know, related to the travels and, and the students and all this kind of thing is I've seen the semesters at sea. And then I've also seen where you can take cruises that go to many stops around the, the world. The price point is probably far higher on those trips than what you did. How would you say what you did and that trip compares from what you know of it? I think you've nailed it with the price point. And semester at sea was probably fun for other reasons because you're with a cohort of students who are exploring this together. It's probably a great experience. But there are limitations to kind of dropping into the big cities. You know, you, you stop in Hong Kong, you stop in Mumbai. Whereas I think a lot of the most interesting parts of the world are between those places. Some of our favorite experiences were the long bus rides 
in places where the boat is not going to dock because you're far inland. And we were traveling on a very low budget, staying in a lot of Airbnb apartments, which means that you're in residential neighborhoods, not in tourist spots and so on. So I feel like by traveling overland on a low budget, while there's some hardships, what you get in return is kind of a deeper look at the country that's less biased towards the big population centers. David, are you still with us? I'm still with you. (laughs) Okay. Well, Dr. Something must have happened to David. He dropped yeah. off. This happens on uh, – Dr. Whelan, yeah, I'm back, and it was me. I got to push some buttons. I was actually kind of prepped for another question. <laughs> oh, you're Before terrible you. at that. <laughs> I did it. I'm sorry. Well, um, Dr. Whelan, want to thank you for coming on the show so much tonight. Um, we plan to get you back on probably after 2022, uh, talking about um, in particular – um, the the political uh, foundation may be the wrong word, um, but but the efforts you have there. Um, but since our listeners have heard about this book, that's so fascinating. It was a great listen, and I'm sure it's just as great a read, depending on your um, preferences. How could folks buy the book? But should be able to buy it anywhere books are sold. Certainly on Amazon. If you go to CharlesWheelan.com, it's got all of my books, but it, Hopefully, should not be terribly hard to find. Yes. Well, we want to encourage everybody to do that. And, and Dr. Whelan, hope you have a great holidays with Thanksgiving coming up and, and Christmas and, and what have, have you coming well, up. They will, and all these kids that people yes, have read they, about in the book are all coming home for Thanksgiving. So we're getting the band back together. All right. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> we're going to get you after the new year back on the show again. I look forward to that. Thank, Thank you, Doctor. Again, sir. All right. Take care. You too. All right, Doctor Charles Whelan, uh, Dartmouth University. I mean, so many interests. I mean, he's not just a world traveler. He's an economist. He's um, got thoughts on politics, which you know that'll be next time uh, we get him, get him back. Um, but the book, just I highly recommend it. It's a funny book too. It's funny. He says he's an introvert, yet he's so outgoing and um, humorous at at the same time. So um, very faceted um, personality. Well, um, Tim, we got just a few minutes, and we've had so much fun talking about hopefully something really positive with the Clayton Crescent continuing on this wonderful trip around the world. And then we've got to talk about the big subject of later in the week, and we've got just a few minutes to do it. Um, The decision came down in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, Um, and, you know, we can talk about the way the law was interpreted, but at the end of the day, two people are dead. One person is, you know, their life is irrevocably changed, and it, it just feels like there was no resolution to it, to say the least. Uh, tell us your thoughts. Like you, I was not surprised really uh, about the verdict. You you could see it coming, and uh, 
My problem, as I mentioned to you before we went on the air tonight, is this. What, what's wrong with us, man? Why was that 17-year-old kid there? Who thought, as far as the adults in his life, that him going there was a good idea? Why does a teenager have an AK-47? Uh, you know, a combat weapon. What What was he doing with that? Why did he cross state lines? What What, what You know, what? I I just don't get it. Uh, they, there's a significant segment of our society I noticed, David, that was glad he did what he did, and they want to celebrate him as some sort of person to hold up as an example of what they think should be done or as some sort of hero, uh, someone to look up to. And this is a 17-year-old kid that, you know, shot three people and killed two of them. Uh, I, I fear we're descending in this country into a deep and dark place. I, I, I'm really disturbed by all of this, aren't you? Yes, I mean, because here's the thing, and, and that's the reaction that, you know, different people had, including the person we spoke of uh, at length last show, Representative Paul Gosar. Um, when you glorify what he did, what are you saying about the lives of those three people? You know, how, how much are you diminishing their lives? Um, because, I mean, at the end of the day, between the three of them, they had a skateboard. And that's in no way a weapon. Um, uh-huh. You know, I don't, I, I don't understand if two people come across each other and one has an assault rifle and one doesn't. Um, I, I, you just kind of have to go. What's the balance here? Because, I mean, unless somebody's like some MMA fighter, I mean, Brock Lesnar's coming after you. Um, if they have no weapon. Um, you know, how is that a, a defensible action to shoot and kill them? You know, if they would have mm-hmm. had a gun and he had a gun and he had a bigger gun, that's different. They had a machete, but they had a skateboard. I mean, a skateboard is a transportation device. Um, yeah. You, you know, and, and I don't even know if it was even, even thought of as yeah. being used as a weapon. But it was just such yeah. a tragic situation, and it looks like, you know, if we'll talk, oh, well, the law, it seems like the problem here is the way the law's written and the way the law is defending the gun more so than the person, maybe more so than the person with the gun and certainly the person that had the gun used on them, that the gun is what's being held paramount, not human life. I mean, did you get that sense? Yeah, yeah, there were there were people who were saying, well, the Second Amendment was once again justified. Oh, come on. I keep asking, why was he there? Do people realize, had he chosen not to go there, that those three, you know, those two uh, men would be alive today? The third one would not have been, you know, seriously wounded. None of this would have happened. Why did he go there? What is wrong with us in our society that we even allow stuff like this to get started to begin with? It just shouldn't happen. And a 17-year-old kid, I'm sorry, should not have 
a weapon like this. They just shouldn't have access to it. They shouldn't have it. Uh, and But you can't. I, I don't know. We, we seem to choose up sides politically about everything. But at the end of the day, there are still two people dead. Their families have no closure. And there is a third one wounded. And, you know, I have to say, well, did their lives mean nothing? They were out there legally protesting, you know. They they can legally do that, and yet they were shot. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I don't know what went on in that city all that night, um, but no matter what it was, this dumpster being burned or what have you, it, it doesn't equate a human life to human lives and another person apparently that is not going to have you know real faculties of one of their arms yeah. uh, due to getting shot. I mean, how, I don't understand how you shoot one person. And then you shoot another, and then you shoot another, and it's still self-defense. I mean, typically you would think um, that well, how in the world does this happen where the first, the second, and third person get shot, and it's still self-defense? I, I, the timeline of it, and I, will admit, I did not watch the trial footage. I just saw little bits and pieces here and there. Yeah, even with that. Even even with what happened in the trial, how the law was interpreted, how the defense and the prosecution presented their cases, I got to go back to another issue, and that is this: people really think it's a good idea to have armed vigilantes out in the street uh, doing this sort of thing when there were cops right there. They they think that's a good idea. To take the law into your own hands, not in your own neighborhood either. Cross the state line. They think that's a good idea. No, you know what? That's not a good idea. We got 4% of the world's population. And 50% of the privately owned firearms are bought and sold here. And less than 50% of our people own just about all the guns. I'm sorry, David, but you're right. A gun, the gun is a central issue here because those statistics I just gave you, that's pretty messed up. Don't you think so? Yes, and I think that, um, you know, the, the, a lot of cases kind of, um, you know, come in this. This has a lot of echoes of um, George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. Um, yeah. Something where luckily no one got hurt. Uh, this past um, weekend or yesterday in Atlanta International Airport, a gun was discharged. Um, I don't <laughs> know what the resolution of that will be, but that was somebody that legally can carry a gun in an airport. The world's – and I guess now it's second busiest. There's one in China that passed it. But the busiest airport, we'll say, in North America, um, and somebody just was you know, carrying a gun. It went off. I mean, you saw the footage kind of afterward and all the people on the ground, uh, scared as can be. And once again, it's, well, they can do that because we have held the gun in such high esteem that we've put it over the safety of people. Mm-hmm. You know, in most airports in this country, uh, it, you know, you, you, you're not supposed to take a loaded or unloaded firearm in. In the first 10 months of this year, 
the number of people who did that was 4,650 people in this country with guns. Most of the guns, by the way, were loaded. Ten months now, I just said, and that eclipses the record that was set in 12 months in 2019. This situation is not getting better with people toting guns into airports all over the country. It's getting worse. We have got to stop this this stuff that you can open carry, and if you've got a permit, you can walk everywhere. When I was in the grocery store Thursday, the grocery store where I live, this little town, and here come a fellow that he was elderly with his wife wearing a sidearm. You know, he wasn't no cop, nothing like that. Wearing a sidearm, grocery shopping. What's he going to do, shoot the little Debbies? What is wrong with people that they have this mentality? Well, you know, you're mentioning about the um, the records and airports, and, and what you I find so vexing and troublesome is that you have um, less people probably flying because you can't travel as freely. Like we were talking about with Dr. Wheeler, you can't fly to every country in the um, the nation, and some people have cut back travel because of even domestic travel, so there's probably less air travel. There's numbers on that somewhere. I don't have them in front of me. Second, you know, a lot of this, you know, public care and guns are probably more likely to be unvaccinated. That means a lot of them aren't able to fly because they can't, you know, uh, or they won't wear a mask, the vaccination issue. And so, therefore, you would think that there would be less guns in the airport, but there's more. So when things go back to normal in in a year or two, and I mean the pandemic side of the normal, what's that going to do to the gun numbers? You think, Tim? Well, it's going to get it's going to get worse and worse because we have this mentality in this country now that we should just have more guns, and that'll that'll take care of crime. And uh, no, no, indeed, more guns is going to mean more shooting. More guns is going to mean more problems in airports and places like this. Good, great people are are, are wearing guns into churches. I mean, it's it's it's, it's going nutty. There are too many, There's something wrong when there's more handguns in the United States than there are people. I'm sorry. I grew up in a house with a hunter. He had shotguns and all such as that, but there's something wrong in this society now when, you know, we glorify stuff like this, people owning 50 or 100 guns, and, and guns like that, that that shoot as many people as you can shoot as fast as you can pull the trigger. We don't need those in this society. They're not designed to yeah, be. I, I just wonder, I mean, you know, and I'll do one extreme, and then I'll go to the other, the more likely extreme. You know, <laughs> let's say we had absolutely no shootings. You know, there was no, you know, violent handgun death. Oh, you mean like shootings. a lot of other countries, yeah. Well, like Switzerland, but but there was yeah. gun ownership. And there would be people that probably, you know, a small minority that want to ban, you know, hunting rifles, which is the extreme position another way. But then how far does it have to go the other way? You know, do you have to have a Columbine every week, every day? 
at what point, or, or the um, tragedy that happened in Las Vegas a few years ago, at what point do those things have to become so frequent? You know, um, I, I told you, fi- I told say, you a long, um, I, I told you a long, I told you nine years ago on this show when I saw twenty first graders get gunned down. When I saw that happen and there was no reaction to that, I threw up my hands in despair. How how do you reason with anyone if that won't get you to the table to reason with anyone? I don't I don't yeah. think there's any any shock value now that we can see that would put a stop to this. Yeah, I just because I think going back to the the case, you know, you know those kids that died at Sandy Hook, those were children. People assume there's yep. no political implications there. People are just going to dismiss those three people that got shot in Kenosha. Two of them tragically killed because yep. oh well, they were leftists, they were Antifa, whatever and, it may and, be. People and are going to dismiss politically. A month from now, God forbid, we might be talking about another shooting, and then another one, and then another one, and on and on it goes. Well, um, I want to thank our guests tonight, uh, Robin Kemp, Clayton Crescent, and then Dr. Charles Whelan uh, of We Came, We Saw, We Left. Read both of those um, publications, one an online news source about Clayton County. We want a travel parenting book extraordinaire. Next week we'll be excited um, after Thanksgiving. We'll get Catherine back to the show and – the editor-in-chief of Race to the White House, Race to WH, Logan Phillips is going to be our guest, and he's got a lot of models that are not just the White House. They also model a state Senate – I'm sorry, U.S. Senate, uh, governorships, congressional races. And so we'll talk to Logan about all that. But until next week, it's been the Kudzik Vine. Good night, everybody. Good night.